everyone, and welcome to the GoTech Please Don't Die podcast, a show devoted to tech going and hopefully not dying. I'm Nathan. I'm Evan. I'm Matt. And we're officially in the off-season now, which means we have to scramble to find things to talk about. So we'll take a page out of last year's notes and do a Where Are They Now, where we take a look at where former tech players are, in one of Matt's cases, maybe not a former tech player, and see how they're doing now, or at least what they did after they left tech. Is that a succinct enough description of what we do here? Indeed it is. Was there any tech news or anything we needed to talk about before we get started? The only thing I can think of is something that we can't talk about and that you should subscribe to Blue Tech Blue to find out, but nothing that we can talk about publicly, at least. Snape killed Dumbledore. Whoa, whoa. book came out like 15 years ago. So did some of these players. What? Whoa, good trenches transition i don't it was an all right transition but yeah so we're going each going to pick one player and we'll talk about them and then later this summer we'll have another episode where we'll each pick another player that we'll also record right now so it will be at least a couple months out of don't date the maybe curtain by back. The time to... pay no attention to the to the man behind oh the yeah curtain. yeah yeah don't look behind the curtain anyway uh matt or evan which one do y'all want to go first and describe your tech player i'll or not I'll player go. i i have to go first okay all right well uh, I've got two really great people, um, but I really feel like I don't want to wait until later on in the year for people to hear about this one person. Uh, my other person's spectacular, and I'm looking forward to you guys hearing about that person too. But this is really unique, and it's something I'm not sure anybody here knows or anybody really knows at all. <laughs> so I would like to go first and introduce my person. All right, go all ahead. Right, who's go your person? It. Okay. My person never played a single sport at Louisiana <laughs> Tech University. Uh, they did play basketball in high school down in Maurice, Louisiana, uh, and were quite good at it, but decided that, or rather, their skill was not good enough for them to compete at a higher level. So my person, uh, without further ado, is J. Keith Dosamore, uh, uh, I'm fucking this up. I had to write it out phonetically because I'm so fucking bad with Cajun names. Uh, okay. My person, without further ado, J. Keith DeSarmo. J. DeSarmo. Keith DeSarmo. Yeah, J. Keith DeSarmo. And that is spelled exactly as Louisianians like to make everything sound. It ends in M E A U X. <laughs> My boy, J. Keith DeSarmo. So, a little bit about this guy. And I'm going to be kind of be all over the place, Nathan. So good luck editing this one. Um, <laughs> J. Keith DeSarmo did not play a single sport at La Tech. Uh, he went and graduated from Louisiana Tech with a degree in animal science. Uh, did not, again, play a single sport. Uh, but after he finished his degree, he broke into the uh, horse training business. Oh. And huh. what has gone on to, and I want to get this out of the way first, just because it's so absolutely insane, has made career earnings of $29 million. Whoa. <laughs> J. Uh, Keith, what's up, my dude? J. Keith sounds like a cold-ass rapper Whoop. name. <laughs> Just, <laughs> my boy, J. Keith. <laughs> J. Keith on the mic. Yeah. Please get rid of that. Hey, if you want to sponsor the GTPDD podcast, J. Keith, we're, we're here. Yeah, J. Keith, this are <laughs> hey. I'm, this episode I'm, brought to you by Jay Keith. Actually, maybe we should hear the rest of uh, <laughs> hear the rest of his story first. Anyway, Keith Desarma graduated from Tech in 1989 uh, with a degree in animal science. Went on to uh, move across the country up towards uh, 
Nathan's neck of the woods in the late 80s to Maryland and uh, studied horse training or rather was apprenticing underneath a, a man named Charlie Hadry. Uh, however, way before that, uh, when he was growing up down in Morris, Louisiana or Maurice, Louisiana, I'm not sure how they say it down there, which Maurice, Louisiana is at the very, very bottom of Louisiana. I don't recall the parish name. Oh, it's in Vermilion. It it's in Vermilion Parish. Oh, so it's by Lafayette. Yeah. Yeah, way down at the bottom of the boot. Uh, whenever I, <laughs> I I listened to several interviews uh, uh, that DeSarmo gave, this man's accent is akin to Ed Orgeron of LSU. Not less gravelly, but that real thick South Louisiana Cajun accent is pretty thick. <laughs> anyway, when he was a kid, uh, Jay Keith's father uh, – ran a racetrack uh, called the Acadiana Downs uh, down there in uh, Maurice, Louisiana. Uh, his father, Harris DeSarmo, owned Acadiana Downs, a bush track. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, Keith and his brother uh, did play sports in high school. They were pretty good at basketball, but spent most of their time showing ponies in 4-H competitions and uh, working with their father at the Acadiana Downs. Now, this is where it gets kind of interesting. Uh, you guys have probably never heard. I mean, no one knows any jockeys. Uh, but J. Keith DeSarmo's brother is actually far more famous and uh, far more well-known, which I guess is famous, and actually holds a Guinness World Record for the most horse racing wins as a jockey in a single season. Set in 1989, as a matter of fact. Can you guys guess how many wins his brother had in a single season or in a single year in 1989? I have no concept of how many races there are, but I'm guessing like I assume one, there's more than one. One per weekend, maybe. So I'm gonna say like forty. <laughs> okay. Well uh I'll, no. I'll double up and say eighty. <laughs> uh no. Um it's substantially higher. It's so high that when I read it, I was like, okay, this has gotta be a this is gotta I you're about to say it's so high that we don't have a number for it. <laughs> it's ten Googles. <laughs> uh, no. In 1989, Kent DeSormo won his third jockey title and set an American record, still to this day held record, for most wins in a year with 598. What? Oh my that God. The, rec the record still stands to this day. He won 598 races in 1989. Wow. And he was only what is he was only 19 years old when he did it. So his brother Kent is far more well known. His brother Kent raced. Now you guys probably remember this from when we were teenagers. There was a a horse, uh, Big Brown, that was competing for the Triple Crown. It was uh, going for all three, and uh, one two of them did not win the last race. The jockey on that horse, Big Brown, was Kent Desarmo. Wow. So does so does his brother work jay keith does he work like with his jockey brother and train the horses that he rides or something or jay keith okay so again i am not very well versed on the horse racing universe or the ins and outs of how it works like it's not like the nfl or a team you support in the nfl or anything like that or even a boxer let's just go with individual sports or even a boxer who you're like, okay, he has a fight coming up or she has a fight coming up. I know when that fight is. I can keep track of the competitions they're in because it's usually multiple and it's not that difficult. But with horse racing, there's multi-level races. There are di different levels of competition. There's different types of competition. It's so convoluted and difficult to follow that when I was going down the rabbit hole of this, I was like, 
this is going to take like weeks to, to even mildly ascertain how this works, which is why this is kind of all all over the place. So to answer your question, though, Jay Keith and his brother Kent do work together from time to time. Their biggest victory together was in 2016 when uh, Kent jockeyed and Jay Keith trained uh, the horse Exaggerator that won the 2016 Preakness States. Wow. Which okay. which was Jay Keith's first, if I'm not mistaken, first Triple Crown victory. And there's a really sweet photo of him kissing the trophy uh, whenever they won back in 2016. I'm fairly certain they won those together, that one together, uh, because they Kent has won the Kentucky Derby as a jockey. Jay Keith has never won the Kentucky Derby with any horse that he's ever trained. Mm. And he trains a lot of horses. I mean, there's no shortage. I I could say a couple dozen, but I don't even think that that's anywhere close to how many horses this man trains. He's got his own stable, so there's no telling how many horses are there, how many come and go, because it takes about two years to train them, and then they really only have a racing lifespan of a, a few years, if I'm to understand this correctly. But Jay Keith has like a, a vault, revolving door of horses that he's raising and training. Uh, he also has, you know, different people can put money into an ownership of a horse. A uh, funny little anecdote here. I was in the middle of trying to <laughs> gather information on Jay Keith, and I was offered a uh, a stake in a horse, $49 for a percentile ownership in a horse. What? Uh, which I may go back and revisit because a lot of... <laughs> <laughs> a lot of fun, a lot of money to be made in this if you know what you're doing. And of course, I don't know what I'm doing, so I probably won't do it. But we name the horse GTPDD. That's actually I don't I don't know how horse naming works either because that is also a very particular thing. There's a science to it and a reasoning to it, uh, which has its own Wikipedia article, and I didn't feel like doing that. But anyway, you can't repeat anybody, so we have to make sure that no one else has named thing. a horse already. Go tech, please don't die. Highly yeah. doubtful. Uh, I think there's a syllable count too. I would like to see the announcer try to say it very quickly. And go to piece of die coming out of the third row. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, uh, oh man, he had, he was very successful in Maryland. He was j- training horses that were participating in a lot of important races, triple crown races, but eventually uh, made his way out to California where he uh, set up shop and then later moved on to uh, Texas Lone Star Park, which I believe is in Grand Prairie, Texas. Uh, he he was there for quite a while. Uh, but from what I could gather, my boy Jay Keith uh, is now running uh, his stable out of Santa Anita, California. Uh, the place is called Santa Anita Park. He trains horses that mostly compete at Santa Anita Park at Del Mar Racetrack, which is just north of San Diego. Wait, and, uh, wait, Santa Anita Park, like in Los Angeles? I think so. Yeah, yeah. Dude, my brother, my my brother, no shit, lives like literally a block from this park. Right Santa now. Anita. Well, we need yeah. to we need to judge we need Judge Drudy to go over and knock on yeah, the door. Yeah, he could have he could have asked. Yeah, it actually says. Uh, now that I'm actually reading some of this, uh, it actually says that he resides in Maurice, Louisiana. And I do have some information backing that that claim up too. But for someone in this type of industry, it wouldn't surprise me, especially with his career earnings, if he has multiple homes. Uh, oh, yeah. Because his business, he works year round, it sounds like. It sounds like he doesn't ever take any time off. But to me, it sounds like he's working out of Santa Anita uh, because he only races horses, as far as I could tell, most of his horses only compete in Louisiana, in California, and in Texas. Uh, he 
has so many that he's trained. I was like, okay, I can't talk about 500 horses. Um, I can maybe pick one or two and kind of cover what those guys have been up to since this is a where are they now. But it looks like he mostly works out of Santa Anita. He races hor- uh, his horses race in competitions in Del Mar Racetrack, north of San Diego, Santa Anita, which apparently is really close to Drew, brother of Evan. Yeah. And uh, somewhere around Los Angeles, which is where his brother Kent lives in Los Angeles. So that wouldn't surprise me if he really does live out there. Uh, and also in Louisiana. I'm not sure where they race at in Louisiana. I uh, didn't really look into that too much. But um, I think I read one that says they have a racetrack in New Orleans. Now, I don't know if you guys know anything about that, but it wouldn't surprise me if it's true. Yeah, the fairgrounds. No, that's it. That's it. That's it. Fair, fairgrounds. That's the one that was listed. Um, so I think he has some horses that have raced out of there. Um, so During anyway, Jazz Fest. Yeah, whatever it is. Um, so, oh, this is an interesting little note. His first million-dollar year came in 2013 when 264 starters accounted him $1.3 million in the year 2013. Wow. Wow, this did not print the way I wanted it to. And I work in a print shop. <laughs> I need, like, a magnifying glass to read this. Hold on. Again, Nathan, I don't know how you're going to edit all this. It's going to be brutal. I'm keeping all this in right now. All of this oh, okay. is staying in. Gotcha. So he trains them. He doesn't ride them. He's not the jockey. So he's got so many horses he's trained that, I mean, seriously, the list is ridiculous. So I wanted to pick one, like the first one that came up that I could find anything on. And uh, what I ended up pulling up was, oh, and by the way, it says, and I'm, this is from uh, Equibase or Equibase. I'm not sure how they pronounce that. But it claims that through this year, through the end of June, that Jay Keith has made $626,939 or earnings from horses that he's trained. Wow. So uh, that's not a bad living. (laughs) He's had, and I'm guessing that this is also through 2021, almost 5,000 races or starts. And of those starts, he's had 725 horses coming first, 707 in second, 667 in third. Which is pretty damn, pretty, those numbers are pretty damn close together. He does have more first place victories for horses he's trained over second or third. Uh, the last win I could see for a horse that he trained was a horse by the name of Street Art. Uh, and that win was a little bit earlier this year. It was uh, May 9th, as a matter of fact. So not even two months ago, wow. uh, that horse came in first uh, and uh, took the prize there. Um, I did not get where that race took place, but it happened back in May. One of the cool things is, though, he has a horse that he's trained called My Girl Red, a female horse. That's My Girl Red. And the first two races she ever ran, she won first in both. But the prize money from one of those races came at Del Mar Racetrack, came in first. This happened last year in 2020, and they took the uh, the prize of $150,000. Uh, and wow. the, next race, the next race was at Santa Anita, where... Uh, my Girl Red came in first again and took home $56,000. Um, one first place in their first two races. And one of my favorite parts of this is there are there's video footage that I'll have to link to you guys of the horse of the horse race because they're really they're brief, but it's really majestic. Like I was I took some photos even. I was like, wow, this horse looks so pretty. It's really, really cool seeing him race. And you're like, holy crap, like this. <laughs> it, it's it's like really exhilarating it's it's pretty cool uh so that was uh the one that i wanted to focus on was my girl red trained by j keith disarmo out of what i'm assuming is santa anita and giving the fact that the first two races were run in southern california i would say that that's true 
I guess I really don't have much more to say. To surmise, my person, not really an athlete, earned their degree in animal science from law tech, graduated in 1989. His brother, his older brother, he is older brother to the more widely known, except in this podcast, uh, jockey, Kent DeSarmo, who has raced in the biggest races in the world and come out victorious in some of those, including the Kentucky Derby. Uh, but anyway, Jay Keith apparently owns, not owns, but I guess he does own a stable there, at Santa Anita Park in Southern California by Drew Spencer. Shouts out, Drew. <laughs> now we have an excuse. We should totally go to a race now. Not to we bet should. anything, yeah. but we, ha- we have to go. And yeah. wear a lot of tech shirts and try to find Jay Keith and just scream at him. Yeah. Uh, Too bad I'm in Maryland where there are no horse races over here. So which is I have to odd go because, California. Right, which is odd. Because, well, you can go to Kentucky. It's odd or wherever the Belmont are. Or I could go to Maryland. That was There are a lot of horse races in Maryland. That's I was going to say, yeah, it would have to be because Maryland is where he bro- kind of broke into the business with his brother. He is like one of the most, one of the most well-respected, renowned horse trainers in the entire, I would say the entire world. It has to be the entire world. Wow. So, and he, he learned all that from Louisiana Tech. And you, yeah, d- yeah I, well, <laughs> maybe not. I, I will say though that he, he probably did some stuff with Louisiana Downs in my hometown of Bossier, but most of what he learned was at the Acadiana Downs, which has long since been leveled and is now a residential neighborhood. But uh, he did not play any sports at Tech. He is merely an alumnus, but he is, I would argue that I did the guy who created the Sims last year. So I remember that guy. Yeah. I I know of that guy, this guy though, it's so out of left field because no one would be like, Oh, one of the most famous people in all of horse racing, like a behind the scenes guy, but one of the most well respected people in all of horse racing is a Louisiana tech graduate. But yeah, that's kind of what he's up to now. He still trains a lot. He had a famous quote uh, where he said, my brother's uh, job lasts two minutes. Mine lasts two years apiece, uh, where he has to train each horse for two years. His brother's job lasts about two minutes every race. Uh, <laughs> so Jay Keith's one of those guys who's just working really hard behind the scenes to put the product, the horse, on the track for the jockeys to ride. He is the reason why jockeys do what they do. Uh, and he is still doing his thing. He's only what is it? 54 years old, probably has a lot of life left in him for this industry. Uh, I will be keeping tabs on him to see what other horses he has and what competitions they'll be in. I'm really curious now to watch a triple crown race. Those are probably the only ones I'll concern myself with and see what horses are competing that he's currently trained or training. Uh, that will be really cool because if he, if they win, then I can be like, Hey, a Louisiana tech guy won, uh, which is and it also gives me a reason to watch horse racing, which I've always we'll got a tech report to start retweeting co- covering um, horse never. racing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I mentioned to you guys, and I'll just throw this out there as well. I could not find his presence on social media. And that goes for LinkedIn. I went on Facebook and found his brother who's just got a personal profile. It's not like a fan page or anything. It's just his personal profile. <laughs> and, uh, I was like, sure, what the hell? I'll message him. He probably, you know, he's almost, he's over 50 years old, so he probably doesn't know where to look for messages that come from people that aren't your friend. But, uh, you know, what the hell? Maybe he's adventurous. Or he just thinks I'm a fucking loser, which he's not off base about that. But uh, he, (laughs) as of right now, he has not responded to me. Uh, But I asked him uh, if he could confirm or clear up where it is his brother, Jay Keith, currently sets up shop. And does most of his training, 
But based on context clues, as far as where are they now to finally answer that question, J. Keith DeSarmo is still very active in the world of horse racing. He's got dozens upon dozens of horses that he trains. Uh, he, several of them are very successful currently and in the past. It looks like he sets up shop mostly in Santa Anita, California, which according to Evan is pretty close to Los Angeles. Oh yeah. It's, um, it's by Pasadena. It's in Arcadia is where sure. that racetrack is. So, so that's where he does most of yeah, his training cool, it seems. And his horses are still winning, uh, as recently as last month, uh, when uh, street art won a race came in first and, uh, took home a prize. And he's currently, Training another horse called My Girl Red that's competing this year, who won their first two races at Del Mar Racetrack in Santa Anita Park, which is where Jay Keith works out of. So he's got a lot going on. He's a he's a complicated man that I couldn't find out too terribly much about, but he did not play sports at Tech. He's merely, well, not merely, he is an alumnus who has had a very successful career in the world of horse racing as a trainer, and his horses that he's trained have gone on to collect over $29 million in winnings. Nice. So that's right. my boy, yeah. Jay Keith Desarmo. Right. I will, uh, I'll do my more traditional player now, since that was a little, like you said, from, from left field. Um, my player is named Angela Turner Johnson. She is a former Lady Texter basketball player um, from the early 80s. So Angela Turner was born in Saline, Louisiana, which is in Bienville Parish up, up in uh, North Louisiana. Um, what is that? A, is that? I hate to interrupt. Where exactly is that? It's uh, it's about thirty miles from Natchitoches. So it's not like sure. Louisiana. Yeah, I'm not sure okay. exactly where, but um, she's a five foot eight shooting guard who first developed her skills playing against boys in backyards and at school on the playground. Um, she said that her trademark jump shot came because she was tired of big, bigger boys older than her blocking her layup attempts. So she developed a little mid-range jump shot that she would uh, she would hone over over the years. Um, she played her high school ball at Shady Grove High, which is now closed. That's really um, strange. I grew up in Shady Grove. Really? Interesting. I mean, I don't... Shady Grove up here, too. Oh, you grew up in Shady Grove, like the neighborhood in Bossier. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, edit that out, Nathan. I don't want people to know where I grew up. <laughs> What's your social security number again? H seven five three zero nine. Oh, that's a coincidence. So we, that's um, also mine. So, so at Shady Grove High, she was billed as the best guard in Louisiana, male or female, during her senior season, when she averaged 31 points per game and 15 rebounds per game, while also being the valedictorian of the school, the student council president, and named Jeez. Miss Shady Grove. So Man. quite quite the accomplishment. I think I think the class was about 18 people, really small high school, but <laughs> but still. But still. Save that part till after you yeah. have all the accolades. <laughs> also being named Miss Shady Grove sounds less of a compliment <laughs> than some other school names, but um she's a three-time All-Stater and the outstanding player in class C as a junior and a senior. Um, she also led Shady Grove to a 46 and one record and the My state championship <laughs> in her senior season. Um, so 46 and one tech assistant coach, Leon Barmore, who was obviously the X's and O's guys on that, on that early, um, texter team. Um, he said, quote, we went to see Angela one night against Simsboro and they were double teaming her the whole game. Finally, they started triple teaming her when she reached half court. <laughs> <laughs> That's how much respect the other schools had for her. She could have started for us while she was still in high school. Um, we're the talking fact, about a, a tech team. Teaming. Yeah. 
yeah, and and we're also talking about a tech team who, you know, in, in 77 they weren't quite as good as they became um in part because of uh players like Angela Turner coming in in 78, but I mean, Tech was a good team and here he is saying like, yeah, she could come play for us right now. She got recruited by the head coach Sonia Hogg and she told coach Hogg uh, quote, we're going to win the national championship. And then later on, she would say, I don't know what made me say that other than that. I <laughs> believed it was true. When I dream, I dream big and I didn't see any reason why it couldn't be us. Was so, she saying this during a deposition? I was like, I don't know why I said that, but I thought it was true. <laughs> to the but best so, of my recollection, I do not recall. Um, so I do not recall. Not, so as to not perjure myself. I yeah. must say. <laughs> yeah. So, so the summer before she came to tech, so she committed to tech, um, obviously with quotes like that, um, the summer before she went to participate in a U.S. junior national team event, kind of like junior Lofton is doing right now. Um, and Maryland's coach was the head coach of that like camp or whatever. And he tried to get her to flip her commitment and come to Maryland. But Turner said, quote, I didn't want to go anywhere but Louisiana tech. So I'm crying. Yep. I'm actually <laughs> had to include tears. that. Had to include that. Um please. So, so she made a big deal about promising a national championship. And obviously we all know that uh she came in in 1978. She played for four years, so we know that she delivered on that promise with the 1981 and 1982 national championships. Um also the Texters went to the final four in each of those seasons that she played for tech. Was so, uh one of those championships was not NCAA, but I believe yeah, it was the it was the they, AIAW in 81, and then the NCAA finally yeah. added women's sports in 82. So Tech and won they the took first. the inaugural, the inaugural competition. Yes. Um, Man, what a, that's, quite, yeah. that's, that's awesome. Yeah. So in her freshman season, she started from day one, um, averaging 17.8 points per game and 10.4 rebounds per game. Um, she was named the Louisiana MVP at the end of the season. Uh, Tech ultimately lost in the championship game to Old Dominion, um, which we know that paid. Yeah, stop me if you've heard that before recently, but um, Tech was number two in the nation due to that loss. But um, in her sophomore campaign, she was even better, averaging 18.2 points per game, just seven rebounds. Um, But she scored 817 points that year, which (laughs) um, do do either of you want to guess where that ranks all time? It's in the top five. I'll give you that. But is it five? no, it's it's 817 points. It's number two um, all time in tech wow. history. Um, that was her sophomore season. And like I said earlier, her scoring was primarily driven by that mid-range jump shot that usually came at the end of a series of pick plays, um, which tech called two down at that time. Um, I, I read that to this day, many teams still employ this scheme that was developed by Barmore back in the day. Um, and in fact, um, former Texter assistant coach Gary Blair, who is now the coach at Texas A&M, actually calls that play Tech. So he he'll draw up a play on the sideline and, and call it Tech. Does that does that mean to lose by one point? Yes, um, exactly. <laughs> um, so after her sophomore season, Turner and Pam Kelly, uh, who I actually covered last summer as one of these um, segments were both invited to try out for the Olympic team, but they declined. Um, Turner would say that later that she regretted it, but they had just finished a grueling 45 game schedule. That's pretty Um, brutal. And by the way, they won 40 games that season, which is still a national record to this day for most wins in a season. Um, That's 
never going to get passed up because they probably just probably not. You don't play that many games anymore. Um, so anyway, also the United States was boycotting the Moscow Olympics over the Soviet Union doing stuff in Afghanistan. But anyway, um, so they they decided to sit that out, and she says that she regrets that decision because it would have been cool to represent her country. But in her junior season, her scoring actually went down a little bit. Uh, but Tech went undefeated, thirty four and zero, and won that first championship that she promised Coach Hogg. Um, the Texers were so loaded that season that Pat Summit, the coach, a legendary coach of Tennessee, said that Tech should be ranked number one and number two because they had the <laughs> best two teams in America. Um, it was so fun to read these like these old quotes about how good we were at at something, you know. I was um, crying for a different reason. And there's a lot of ridiculous attitudes towards women's basketball, like, oh, does like no one cares, blah, blah, blah. Like if La Tech was still that good, that good, oh, I gu- I guarantee you the tack would be packed. Oh yeah. I, I mean it, it. it used to I mean it used to be packed. So um en route to that championship, Turner played 79 of the 80 total minutes in the final four. Um she earned the wait, final wait, four. Wait, 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 wait. How many? She played 79 of the 80 total minutes. <laughs> what the- <laughs> yeah, so she sat out for one minute of those two games. Um, 30, 30 second break per game. Right. Um, she was named the Final Four's MVP after scoring 30 points uh, total across both games. It's awesome. Um, and finally, during her season, senior season, she only averaged 10.4 points per game. So a little bit of a drop off. But that was, again, because the Texters were so deep. Um, and also they were blowing out teams. Their average win that season was by 33 points per game. So by the time that like you'd need your clutch oh, players, they're all sitting on the bench, yeah, right? That's, that's um, fantastic. So she rounds out her playing career. And to this day, she's the only texter to rank in the top 10 of these following categories, points, rebounds, assists, and steals. So she's number three in all time points six in rebounds, eight in assists, and third in steals. Um, and her number five jersey is retired at Louisiana Tech, and she's the only texter that ever wore that number because she was the first one to wear number five. Awesome. Um, wow. And during, yeah, pretty, first pretty cool. First and last. Yeah. yeah. So during her playing days at Tech, <laughs> students put up a banner during games that in Memorial Gym that read AT&T, your Louisiana connection. And then it said Angela Turner and Tech written out below the AT&T. I'm crying. Um, yeah. <laughs> but the <laughs> I thing. I forget to, were they only playing games at the Scotty Rob back then? Uh, I, I do not believe it was called the Scotty Rob, but yes, they, they like, played in like Memorial it's Gym. It's never been called the Scotty Rob. Well, it's, I, it's called, now Scotty Robin, Robert Robertson or Robinson. I think it's Robinson. Robinson. I parked in front of that building a lot. Uh, yeah. Just so you get uh, to name it. on the north side of the building. I, I parked there a lot and I would call it the Scotty Rob. I've been calling it there for like nine or 10 years. First time I told, I told Daniel that he threw his mouse down on his desk and tried to strangle me. <laughs> I remember playing in the pep band for the, uh, for the dedication of that building to, to Scotty Robinson. So it is okay. Scotty um, Robertson, by the way. Robert. So Robertson. must have showed up to the wrong venue to do that dedication. <laughs> Was um, it a, is that Phil's dad? I, 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 I don't know. I can't imagine. <laughs> um, but yeah, she, but Scotty so, Robertson. So they were, they were only playing games there? Yeah. Oh, okay. Scotty Rob, by the way, was the first coach for the New Orleans Jazz. Huh. Wait, is one that other, one other thing though? What uh was that when did the tech open? Uh 80. we just asked this the other day. I think it was 82. Gotcha. So they didn't play in there for their NCAA championship winning season. 
uh, depends on when in 82, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, to the, to the internet probably later, before anyway. the 82, 83 season. But anyway, probably. Angela Turner was not just, uh, a good basketball player. She was also a great student. She had a 3.35 GPA and earned one of the first NCAA postgraduate scholarships. So they gave 10 scholarships to athletes in 1982 and she used that scholarship to get her master's in business at tech um and during the long bus trips that the texters would go on to play games she was known for being the one who brought her books on the bus with her to so that she could study um while the rest of her teammates were were not doing that so but since this is where are they now i tried to find out you know where she where she's been since then obviously um, there were not any American opportunities for, uh, professional women's basketball at that time. Um, she did have the opportunity to play overseas, I believe in Italy, but she turned that down, um, choosing to focus on her career. Um, she became a CPA out of college and worked as a senior accounting manager at Coca-Cola. So that's an executive level position. So that's pretty cool. But she also worked as the controller um, of Motown Records, you know, pretty, pretty famous record label. Putting it mildly. Um, yeah. But also Bellmark Records. Um, and so I couldn't really find out much about her specific position with those, um, with those record labels, but just wanted to jump into this real quick. Bellmark Records was a small indie label out of Los Angeles, which was formed in 1989. I think I know um, where this is going by the former CEO of Stax records. Um, the label was initially intended to produce gospel and spiritual mu- music, but by 1994 had swapped to focus I, on quote, positive, fun, entertaining party I know, music. I really know where this is going now. Do you really <laughs> go on? I'm kind of intrigued by where you think this is going. No, just go on. Um, <laughs> so tell you later that he called it. The biggest hit records distributed by Bellmark record label were Dazzy Dukes by Deuce. <laughs> um, what? The Most Beautiful Girl in the World by Prince. Hey. And also, Whoop, There It Is by Tag Team. <laughs> and we all know that song. We I all mean, do know that song. <laughs> oh, God. But the most interesting thing about this record label is that they also collaborated with Disney on an album called Mickey Unwrapped. <laughs> Does Mickey which, the Mouse rap? Yes. Oh. Which, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, U-N-R-A-P-P-E-D. Mickey Unwrapped. So no oh. W in there. Which featured Disney-themed parodies of rap songs, including Whoop, There It Went, performed by Tag Team <laughs> and Disney characters. And Nathan, can you just play the start uh. of this song, please? something like this donald duck back again turn up the music let's begin party on party people let me hear some noise party with donald daisy and the boys there's a party over here a party over there tossing donald up in the air now trying to catch him he falls down <laughs> there he went hit ground <laughs> please make it stop i just did golly talk about Uh-oh. a torture a great torture tactic for a u.s military to implement uh, that was horrible that bad. yes it was 
<laughs> what's worse is the image of the cover of the album. Yeah, that is that's... absolutely brutal. Mickey yeah. Mouse wearing a backwards hat, which somehow still has his ears poking out the sides where there aren't holes. It's a ra- it it's pretty racist, stereotypical cover. Yeah. It is. It is not great, Disney. Um. Anyway, uh, the label went bankrupt in 1997. Um, <laughs> as it des- as it deserved. <laughs> as a great transition there. But back to Angela Turner, who's now Angela Turner Johnson. Um. She lived in Los Angeles, obviously, when she worked for that record label. Then she actually ended up living in London. Um. And now she and her husband live in the Dallas Fort Worth Metroplex, where she is still a CPA. Um, she was just inducted into, I believe, the Louisiana Sports Hall of Fame this year. Um, but one last interesting fact about her, while she was in London, she took up mission work with her church and traveled to South Africa on mission trips to teach children there. I believe that would have been in the late 90s, early 2000s. So um, South Africa, a little going through some interesting Tor- stuff at that yeah, time. Towards the end of apartheid. Yeah. So anyway, that's Angela Turner Johnson, Lady Texter Great, who's finally getting some of the rec- recognition that a lot of her teammates got. Um, you know, her teammates were quoted, you know, like Kim Mulkey and um, Pam Kelly were quoted as saying that she should have been in the Hall of Fame the same time they were. Like, they didn't understand why it took, you know, an extra 10 years to get her in. Um, but anyway, that's Angela Turner Johnson, Hall of Fame, Lady Texter, number retired. Um, and it's always fun to revisit the early eighties. So I'll probably end up doing like every player from those teams eventually in these segments. <laughs> yeah. So I guess I'm left and unsurprisingly, I'm picking a baseball player. I am. All right. I lay it on us. Richie LeBlanc. Richie LeBlanc, huh? Richie LeBlanc. Well, I'm glad okay. you didn't pick the person I picked. Uh, Richie to go through his quick stats while he was at tech, he has the 10th most career innings pitched in tech history. With 281 and a third, he has the second most wins in tech history with 29. In uh, 1986, he tied for the fourth most wins in a single season in 10. And then upped that because the next year in 1987, he tied for the first most wins in a single season with 12. Uh, Back in 86, he also tied for the second in tech history in most complete games pitched in a single season with nine. Whoa. But it's a complete game shutout or at least a complete game in 1987 that I want to focus on at first. Because in 1987, Tech played LSU in Ruston. Whoa. Some background about this. The 86 team, the year before this, Tech had a very good team. They went 36-25, and won the Southland Conference, and went to the Baton Rouge Regional, where they ended up getting eliminated after, I think they went 2-2 that year. But the pretty much the entire roster returned for 1987. So things look to be on the up and up. And then in mid-April, LSU came to town before Pat Patterson, you know, of Pat Patterson Park fame, took over the program in 1968. Tech and LSU hadn't played since 1947. So there was a 20-year absence between the last time these two teams played. After Patterson took over, they did play a few times during his tenure in, in 1970, 71, 83, and 84. Uh, but Tech would win all of those games. Oh, wow. So Tech had a four-game winning streak heading into 1985, but then LSU won the next three, including a win over that tech team in the Baton Rouge Regional in 1986. So a bunch of years here, but this has actually been kind of a back-and-forth baseball, I wouldn't call it a rivalry, at least not from LSU's perspective, but tech has been pretty good against LSU, 
and hoping to get some payback after they, I don't think it was the elimination game, but at least knocked them to the loser's bracket of that Baton Rouge Regional in 1986. But 1987 against LSU, LeBlanc, the guy who I'm talking about, he gets the start on the mound for Tech. And the game doesn't start off too hot because of LSU's Albert, otherwise known as Joey Bell. Oh, well, Albert Bell. <laughs> yeah, the that's, same that's Albert to, Bell. That's all you had to say, Albert Bell. Holy crap. He would eventually become a five-time All-Star, five-time Silver Slugger for the 1990s Cleveland Indians. Was an awesome player. I remember watching him yeah. when I was a kid. I have a story to tell about him, but I'll save it for the coda, and we'll record that later. But Richie LeBlanc tells his story of the first at-bat against Albert Bell like this. He says, quote, I think I threw him a curveball and he stood back and started yelling at me. You're going to sit there and throw me curveballs? Challenge me if you're really going to get me out. So I did. And he hit it over the railroad tracks. So, yeah, the first inning, first at bat to Albert Bell was a solo shot to right field. And Tech is down one nothing to LSU immediately. Uh, I have a (laughs) I never thought I'd be able to bring this story up, but I cannot believe I haven't brought it up till now. (laughs) My uncle. Uh, had a baseball scholarship to play at uh, LSUS in the late 80s, early 90s. He was a designated hitter for the LSUS pilots at the time. And uh, that was right. Albert Bell's from Shreveport. He went to Huntington High School. Yeah. Um, and Albert Bell is famously known in Shreveport for being the only player known to, <laughs> I guess LSU was playing Centenary in Shreveport. And L- Albert Bell hit a home run that hit the centenary gold dome in Shreveport uh, for context. Uh, and there isn't really much cause I grew up around there. That's really fucking far. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's insanely far. And he's the only player that people know of that hit the gold dome. Anyway, my uncle and my mother and my aunt can attest to this. My uncle hit a home run that hit the steps of the gold dome in Shreveport. Wow. He he did not hit the uh, roof like Albert Bell did, but uh, he hit the steps at the gold dome. But yeah, Albert Bell was a bit of a baseball prodigy in Shreveport. Yeah. And he kind of showed what he was made of when he hit that solo home run in the top of the oh, first of this game. It would not be his last tracks. over the railroad tracks, according to the starting pitcher who threw him the ball. But Tech answered at the bottom of the first uh, with a walk by Charlie Montoyo, you know, the guy who's currently managing the Blue Jays. He was singled home by David Segui, who would also go on to have an MLB career, I believe, with the Mets. But LSU retook the lead in the second inning thanks to an RBI ground out that scored a run by, I am not making this name up, Mike Papajohn. <laughs> That's the best. It's excellent. I think he needs to call John. John Papajohn. <laughs> John. <laughs> His middle name is Juan. John Juan Papa John. <laughs> yeah, all one word, <laughs> lowercase J and John. Yeah. Wait, like Papa P-A- John. Wait, P A P A J O H N. P A J O H N. All one word. Uh, go on. All right. So then LSU has the lead and that have the lead going into the fourth inning where this happens for tech. Uh, David Segui reached on an error by the second baseman, then uh, gets over to third base on a double by the next tech batter. The batter after that hits an easy grounder back to the pitcher. The pitcher sees that David Segui is kind of between third base and home and throws back to third base to try to catch him leaning. And Segui runs home and the ball is missed by the third baseman. 
and Tech scores a run thanks to an error after he got on base thanks to an error. And now the runners are on second and third. A suicide squeeze scores another runner, which the fact that baseball has a thing called a suicide squeeze is, is fun. And then another single, and now Tech has the lead over LSU 4-2. to two. But then that pesky Joey Bell comes back up to bat and hits another home run. This mm-hmm. one a two-run home run to tie the game in the sixth. There's mm-hmm. no scoring in the seventh, no scoring in the eighth, no scoring in the ninth. We're heading to extras, free baseball. And mm-hmm. Richie LeBlanc, you know, the guy we're supposed to be talking about, heads right back out to the mound. Oh, yeah, that's right. It's the 10th inning, and LeBlanc is still in this game. Oh, my God. And it was not an easy call for tech coach Pat Patterson to keep him in this game. Uh, he had only given up five hits, but he's allowed four runs to allow this game to be tied. Another tech pitcher named Jimmy Faircloth had apparently gotten up to warm up to possibly go in to relieve LeBlanc seven different times in seven different innings throughout this game. He kept getting up to warm up, then getting set back down when LeBlanc got out of whatever jam he was in. Apparently, Faircloth threw over 100 pitches in the bullpen just to stay warm uh, and never wow. even entered the game. <laughs> well, at least he threw he, a full game. Yeah. He also threw another full game the next night when uh, the team traveled to play the Delta State Fighting Okra. Hell yeah. <laughs> hey, this is a Fighting Okra podcast. This is a Fighting Okra podcast. So, yeah, Faircloth threw a lot of pitches. Um, but again, in this game against LSU, LeBlanc is on the mound for the tenth in- for his 10th inning of work. And first up is goddamn Mike Better Ingredients <laughs> Better Pizza Papa John. <laughs> and Papa John hand delivers a bloop single into right field. So the winning run, or the leading run at least, for LSU is on base, but he gets thrown out trying to steal second. And hmm. then our boy Richie LeBlanc strikes out a batter, and there are two outs. Joey Bell, you know that guy who yells at pitchers for throwing curveballs that he hits over the railroad, he's on deck. And so Pat Patterson heads out to the mound, tells LeBlanc, this is your last batter. If you can't get this out, you're coming out. And so Richie LeBlanc got the out, this time a ground out to end the frame, keeping the bat out of Joey Bell's hands. And then with one out in the bottom of the 10th, Charlie Montoyo enters the batter's box. One more tangent real quick. This was the second time LSU baseball had come to Ruston (laughs) since the 40s. LSU was ranked 20th in the country and coming off their first College World Series appearance. To say the crowd at J.C. Love Field was rocking would be an understatement. Uh, Most of the Tech games this year had averaged around 200 people attending. Uh, When ULM came to town at the time, Northeastern, those attendance figures got up to be around 1,000. This LSU game set a program record with 2,375 people in attendance. Wow. And so it is loud when Tech's best bat, Charlie Montoyo, heads to the plate. And Montoyo had gone 0 for 3 so far in this game. He had a walk in the first, but after that, he hasn't reached base. But that doesn't stop him from crushing a curveball over the right field fence to walk off LSU in Ruston. Hell yeah. Uh, my, my boy pulled a Jack Morris. You guys I, don't, don't know who Jack, I, don't, I don't know who that is. Jack Morris, he pitched a complete game in Game 7 of the World Series, 10 innings. He won. He huh? was MVP for the Good Minnesota for Twins. Who? For the Minnesota Twins. <laughs> <laughs> you crazy bastards. So Montoyo hit the ball over the right field fence. Fuck and it was guys. pretty much that exact same point where the baseball crossed over the outfield wall. Hundreds of students and fans started storming the field. <laughs> At the time, that was a 10 foot fence that people were scaling to celebrate <laughs> with a team well, on the well, infield. We're a lot fatter these days. That, that explains it. it. Yeah. Can't that, climb that as easily. 
Yeah, so again, the guy we're talking about, Richie LeBlanc, he ended the night with a 10-inning complete game five hitter, giving up four runs, two walks, and striking out nine Tigers. Wow, Jack Morris, baby. Yeah, that possibly might be the best tech game never televised. I wish there were some highlights of that that I could find oh, somewhere. But I almost well, thought you were going to play like Dave Nitz audio. Yeah, so did I. So did I. I hope to find some. I don't pull up some old Shreveport Times archives to find some of the description of some of these plays. Uh, but I'm not done about that 1987 season yet because that game wasn't the last one and it wasn't enough to give Tech an at-large into the NCAA regional. They had a pretty impressive resume, but at the time, Tech had to win their conference to make the regional. And to do so, they had to get through Lamar. And there was no double elimination tournament or anything like that setting this up. What would happen is you had two divisions, which at the time they called zones. And if you won your division, I mean zone, then you go to the championship series. So Tech won the East Division, Lamar won the West. And this wasn't a three-game series to decide the champion of the conference. It was a best three of five. So a five-game series to decide the winner of the Southland Conference. And it wasn't all played back-to-back either. The first two were played in Beaumont, Texas at Lamar. Tech won the first, lost the second. Series headed back to Ruston. Richie LeBlanc was on the mound for game three, and although he allowed eight hits, he only gave up one run, and Tech won nine to one. So with game four, Tech needs one more win out of the next two games to head to the NCAA Regionals for the second time in two years. And it was looking pretty good for Tech. The Bulldogs led 5-0 after two and 6-2 Tech at the start of the eighth inning, just six outs away from that auto bid to the regional. But Jimmy Faircloth, you know, that guy who was the bullpen who threw 100 pitches, he's the one that started this game, and he gives up a double and a walk to lead off the eighth inning. So Coach Patterson puts in our boy Richie LeBlanc, and LeBlanc strikes out the first two guys he faces. So now two outs, only four more to go to win the game. But he had two men on when he came in the game, and he hits a batter to load the bases. Then he gives up a single and then a triple, and now the game is tied. But to be fair, LeBlanc had pitched his complete game the night before, and he's being asked to, to do a six-out save here. So he must be pretty gassed, right? I, I would expect him to, maybe once the inning's over, take him out and, and use a different pitcher you have on staff. But instead, he heads out for the ninth inning and the tenth inning and the eleventh inning. <laughs> And the 12th inning. <laughs> so basically a game and a half. Yeah. And in the 10th, Lamar loaded the bases too with no outs. So it wasn't like LeBlanc was just three pitches and getting three outs or anything. He was he had a lot of pitches under his belt by this point. But when Lamar loaded the bases in the 10th, he got a strikeout, a pop-out, and then a ground out to keep the game tied. And then when he pitched his final inning of the ninth, again the 14th inning he's pitched in two nights, Tech loaded the bases with two outs in this 12th inning. And then Steve Davison of the Davison family the Dak is named after, he steps up to the plate. Here's how Davison tells this story. He says, quote, I remember being irritated because David Segui was on de- was in the on deck circle warming up. I thought, you don't need to be swinging a bat. I'm going to come through. Sure enough, I struck out. I remember going back out to left field thinking this was going to be a long offseason. I just left my team down. Sad. Unquote. Yeah, so while LeBlanc didn't pitch the 13th, Tech survived another bases-loaded opportunity for Lamar to head to the bottom of the 13th, still tied. And then the first pitch of the inning, remember, it's David Segui coming up to bat. He drills it over the left center field wall. Tech walks off Lamar to win the Southland Conference, and Tech is headed to an NCAA regional in back-to-back years. Man. Two insane games in one year. 
Uh, ultimately, Tech didn't make out of the NCAA regionals that year. It was at UNO. I think LSU was the one that actually made it out of that regional, even though the two teams didn't play. But still, that 1987 team, I wish I could have seen some of these games. Yeah, pretty cool. Sounds familiar from what I what yeah. I witnessed a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Um, so, Richie LeBlanc, 87, was his last year at Tech. He was drafted by the Kansas City Royals in yeah, the 10th round right, of the bitch. 1987 draft. Uh, he started... In single A ball with the Appleton Foxes, then played in the Baseball City Florida Royals in single A before eventually being promoted to the Memphis Chicks of double A. Okay. But then in 1990, he hung up his cleats. It wasn't an injury. He had given himself five years to make the majors, and if he didn't make it, he was going to walk away. And so he did. Wow. So what he did instead was he got a job with an insurance company, and he worked there for nine years and worked his way up to vice president of the company. From there, he entered the timber industry, becoming the director for the Seattle-based Weyerhaeuser. And then in early 2016, he returned to Rustin to become the president of Hunt Forest Products, I believe a tech sponsor. Oh. And to to wrap this up and put a bow on it, earlier this month, LeBlanc received his biggest honor yet, being voted into the Louisiana Tech Athletics Hall of Fame. Nice. So Richie LeBlanc, tech baseball player termed president of a timber company. Well... Is his son Matt LeBlanc? I'm pretty sure, yeah. Okay, well that clears a, a up a friend's name. Yes, just making sure. <laughs> well, that was interesting uh, to say the least. Yeah. Well, this yeah, this first episode was a wild ride here. Yeah, we had a, no, no pun intended. We had my boy Jay Keith, horse racing trainer extraordinaire. We had uh, the AT and T connection. Yeah. Uh, who sounds like she was a fucking god at basketball. I, dude, I wish I could watch that 1982 Texters team unfold. Oh, I bet it, I bet it was a. I bet it was obscene. Their average At, win was 33, 33. points. <laughs> I mean, I where was that when I was at Tech? Man. Anyway, and then we wrapped it up with good old Richie LeBlanc, father of Matt, <laughs> uh, who pulled a Jack Morris. Who neither you jackholes know who that is. Uh, pretty we interesting went, stuff for the first episode. We went very yeah. heavy with the uh, with the French names on this one not yeah, not mine yeah de sormo and uh leblanc. leblanc which to be fair matt leblanc from boston and he's french canadian but sure yeah and he's also the son of former tech baseball player richie leblanc that is true i forget yeah who apparently went to boston at some point to father a child oh, <laughs> maybe i think he was the inspiration for the lyrics tbh because if you're going in for a game the day after a complete game i, I wonder if the coach told richie so no one told your life was gonna be this way <laughs> and on that note that about wraps it up for this episode of the go tech please don't die podcast as always speaking of rap though we also heard that great um that great uh, <laughs> nightmare <laughs> fuel <laughs> <laughs> all right anyway yeah, maybe i'll have about, that play yeah. us out oh, but yeah <laughs> you can follow us on twitter at g-o-t-e-c-h-p-l-s-d-n-t-d-i-e or head to our blog, gtpdd.dog, where there's some blog posts up and there may be some more up throughout the summer where we will eventually start talking about football. Again, that's gtpdd.dog. And until next time, I'm Nathan. I'm Evan. I'm Matt. And go tech. Please don't die. And the rest is up to the beat. Now let me see which button do I press. I must confess I don't have the mask. Hey, Mickey, get me out of this mess. DJ Goo. Now 
in this? Whoa, that's not right. Hey, what's this loose wire doing here? Ah! I used to use Albert Bell on Home Run Derby and King Griffey Jr. Slugfest. Oh, you may be very interested by the story then. Uh, so sure Albert Bell, so Albert Bell again, the former LSU Tiger, he's playing for the Cleveland Indians in 1994. And in the first inning, he steps up to the plate and the White Sox manager asks the umpires to take a look at Bell's bat because they believe it's corked. And pretty much everyone in the stadium thinks it's corked. The umps, the teams, the fans... And so what the umpires do is they kind of take a look at it and then confiscate the bat and they head into their own lock dressing room, the umpire's dressing room, and lock the door behind them, leaving the bat there for them to take a closer look at later and send to the league office. Another important point on this, during the sixth inning, a custodian enters that dressing room and he later reports seeing clumps of ceiling tile on the floor and twisted metal brackets in the ceiling. What? Okay. After the game, the umpires head back to their dressing room. They look at the bat. It's odd. It's not as shiny as it was earlier. And Albert's Bell's name, which had been on the bat, is not there anymore. Now it says Paul Sorrento, a name of a different Cleveland Indian. Wait a second. These are not the same bats. Someone has switched the bats Indiana Jones style, and now the corked bat isn't there anymore. So the White Sox call Chicago police. (laughs) The MLB flies in an FBI agent. And the equipment room is dusted for fingerprints. What? Man, I thought they were bad about the cheating stuff right now. Jesus. <laughs> and eventually this kind of fizzles out. But for five years, the investigation and what they found was kept a secret all the way until 1999, when I guess <laughs> we were just way too afraid of Y2K to keep things like this secret. So, all right, we know the bats are switched. Who do you guys think took the bat and made the switch? Do you think it was Albert Bell do you think it's a crazy fan who knew something or a team staff member? Maybe the custodian who reported on seeing the ceiling tile on the floor? I just want to know why the ceiling tile was on the floor. You got to guess, Evan, who you think it is? I'm going to guess the Bat Boy. They the sent Bat him on a, on, a, on a secret clandestine <laughs> Bat Boy mission. All right. So, like I said, everyone knew that the bat was corked, especially the Indians, the team that Albert Bell played for at the time. So while the game is happening, they know they need to get the bat back so he doesn't get in trouble. So they send relief pitcher Jason Grimsley out to make the switch. He takes a random bat from the clubhouse, and he's a pitcher, so he doesn't even really realize the names are different. He slides out a drop ceiling tile from his manager's office and jumps into the ceiling. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> he John McClain's his way into the umpire dressing room, and that's where he makes a less than graceful exit into the room where he leaves behind some evidence of ceiling tile debris, swaps the bats, and climbs back. And he was sworn to secrecy and told not to tell anybody until he retired. And so that's why it took so long for it to come out. Um, Also, by the way, why not use a different Albert Bell bat? It's because according to the teammates uh, that he had a couple different ones cooperated this, every single one of his bats were corked in 1994. (laughs) Oh, man. Strike shortened year, too. Yeah. (laughs) I didn't know that he was such a cork user. And he was also the first player to ever break the $10 million contract. $10 million a year salary. In the highest play, he was the highest paid player in, in the majors at a time. And we're talking about a time where fucking Barry Bonds, King Griffey Jr., Big Mac, Sosa, Conseco were all playing. And he was the first to crack $10 million oh. a year. Wow. With cork bats. Asshole. 